0: Have you ever wanted to get inside the minds of today's top entrepreneurs and creative thinkers? The Upside with Brad Keywell gives you intimate access to conversations with the world's smartest, most creative people. Here's a job that definitely didn't exist 100 years ago, food design technologist. On this episode of The Upside, you'll meet Dr. Erwin Adam Adelnant, known as the Willy Wonka of Toronto. As founder and principal of the Future Food Studio, He spins up out-of-this-world experiences that have changed the way we interact with and experience food and drinks. And unless you've been hiding from Instagram, you've surely heard about one of his most famous projects, the Museum of Ice Cream NYC, where he served as founding partner. Dr. Irwin shares with Brad how to leverage exploration, throw out the rules, and turn your passion into your dream job. This is The Upside.
1: It's really good to have you, Irwin. So how do you introduce yourself when somebody says, tell me what you're up to?
2: I run a food design technology studio. Basically, everything we do revolves around food interaction, engagement, and experience. So we're thinking about things from what you eat to the tools around that, all the way up to large-scale spaces and places. Food design technology, how do you get to that? What type of education
1: or experiences lead you to say, I don't want to be a chef, Or a technologist or a designer i want to be a food design technologist
2: legitimately this has been a combination of kind of my passions my interests and my skills by training i have a phd in biomedical engineering my background was in chemical engineering before i went into that my research was really focused on building platforms for personalized medicine so that was my background in technology i've worked in food ever since i was 15. What was your first job in food? Actually, my very first job in food was serving ice cream at the age of 12 in the mall. I grew up on the prairies in Winnipeg. So I was serving ice cream soft serve in the mall at a place called NYPD. Nice. does not exist anymore. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I think it's for like nuts, yogurt, pudding, dessert or something like that. <laughs> I don't remember what it was. Uh, that was my first food job. And then at 15, I started working at a restaurant in Winnipeg and I... I just fell in love with making food.
1: But then you also fell in love at some point or at least got focused on the medical profession.
2: So how did that happen? So everything was in parallel, right? Like it's kind of one of those things where you know, you have kind of what your hobbies are. And then you also have kind of what your, your professional like interests are. And the, those things for me were very, very separate always. You know, I always actually thought I would go to medical school. And my parents are very hardcore, classic immigrant parents uh, from the former Soviet Union. Basically, like your choices in life were to, well, you could do anything you want to do as a career. You can be a doctor or a lawyer, you know, that, that's kind of <laughs> like the, the, the thing. So the path was, I started in traditional pre-med, and I realized that these are the people I'm going to have my professional career with for the rest of my life, and I really didn't like the people. And so I looked at who the people were that I did like, and they were the chemical engineers. I had no clue what chemical engineering was, but I knew that I liked the people. And I remember the day I went into the advisor to ask him if I could switch into it. And he's like, do you know what it is? I'm like, nope, I don't care. (laughs) And he told me, he's like, well, basically, you're going to take chemicals from one side of the plant and other chemicals from the other side of the plant and mix them together. Like, Sounds great. Let's do it. Wow. But what that education really gave me was the ability to, one, like, work my ass off. It was so hardcore in the program that we were put through. And I was at McGill University, which actually had a real strong focus on theoretical parts of engineering so it really gives you a way of expanding your brain fast and it's like really like ripping your brain open and like forcing information inside we didn't sleep we didn't eat we cried a lot we laughed a lot for real yeah for four years uh you know my last year i was coming home probably at three in the morning I'd being the design student until three in the morning i'd be back by six so what are you designing all night so we would do our full course load and then we had design projects that work for clients. And we were building a factory in Algeria. That was my project. And yeah, you you just like. What kind of factory? Uh, it was a salt manufacturing factory. So you're your up
1: all night working
2: on the, <laughs> a practical project for this actual company. Yeah. yeah. It's basically doing uh, a feasibility study on it. So you have to design the whole thing from the ground up and run all the economics on it and understand, like, is this a go or no go? Wow. And then from there, what was your thesis about? I did a master's before my PhD at McGill as well, which was focused on looking at taking uh, large compounds from cranberries. And so this was kind of like bringing me back to food a little bit and look at embedding them within biomaterials and creating new biomaterials that were anti-infective. So hospital acquired infections, like the fourth leading cause of death in North America. And you know, part of that is just infections people are getting from catheters. And so I was like, hey, let's see if there's natural ways to make catheters live longer. So it's something that's already out there in the public, you know, knowledge space that, you know, urinary tract infections can be prevented by consuming cranberry juice. So for me, it was a lot about, you know, how do we figure out if that is true? But even if it's a partial truth, is there something in these cranberries that actually can be used to prevent biofilm formation or, or bacterial attachment services. And I think this is really what my skill set has always been. I can see systems really well. You know, I've been really good at understanding how things connect to one another. In the world. In the world. And that's like ever since I was a kid, I think it was a lot of reading. I like to spend a lot of time alone reading, exploring things, testing things, building things. And, you know, it's kind of like these incubation periods that I need. And then I kind of get to flex out of them and get to share that with other people. And that kind of continues into what I do now professionally. And I moved to New York. I took a job actually at a branding agency and the entire economy collapsed. And so that job ended. And then I went back to to Canada being like, okay, what am I going to do? And I got the scholarship from the Canadian government. It happened to be the biggest scholarship that the government gives. Basically $100,000 to go back to school.
1: To do whatever you want. Whatever you want. What
2: did you learn about life during your PhD experience? The most incredible piece of my PhD was actually the broader lessons around it. And you realize that everything is an opportunity and opportunities are Everywhere like even in the smallest room, there's an opportunity and you know being in research. That's a literal uh, Analogy, I would be in a tiny room by myself with a microscope in an experiment. It's like there's a possibility There's something in this tiny room in this microscope that could change the whole world. There's potential and so there's always potential But you have to give yourself the agency and you have to be your own best advocate and you have to just go and explore and I for better or worse design my own path. So I did my first year in Toronto. Then I went and spent a year at Harvard. I went and spent a year at École Normale in Paris, and then I came back to finish my PhD. And so much about that was this realization that, like, you have to go and explore. Like, you really need to go meet the people, go do the things, because, you know, it's a time in life where you're kind of absorbing and you're trying to figure out, like, how you fit in. And through that came a lot of lessons and a lot of incredible people in my life, too, that showed me and shared with me a lot of ways to slow down. I was always a very, very high energy person. And maybe it was like stumbling over my own feet in a lot of ways. A friend of mine gave me an Eckhart Tolle audio CD for my birthday. And I was like, this is ridiculous. That was my initial reaction. I had a lot of resistance. I'm like, this is ridiculous. But I'm sitting in the lab. I'm like, you know what? I'll put it on. And the one thing I remember from it that actually has stuck with me today was this this notion of considering yourself as this single point in time, space, in the universe, whatever it is. And this point is defined by you. And it is you. And all these different things can happen around that point. But they don't actually change that point as it transverses space and time. And that actually became a really good structure to hold on to. Because you realize like you define your path. You define yourself. And you get to have these incredible experiences, but you choose what becomes part of you.
1: I had a similar skepticism when I first was exposed to Eckhart Tolle, and I had a similar takeaway. It's very hard to debate the sense that the only thing that's real right now is right now. And the human tendency is to bring your entire life of guilt, resentment, you know, or sludge from your past to bring it forward into right now and then to take the entire future of your existence and the fear you have about what might happen and bring it back into the right
2: now. Yeah. I think for myself, at least, you know, going back to messaging like that is really grounding. Yeah. Uh, and particularly when you are maybe high energy and you're, you're you're running after all kinds of things in all different directions because you're excited. I'm in the same zone as you in
1: terms of loving the activity of life and having the risk of being so active in life that you're not present so it's uh, it takes work but it's
2: it's attention but you can wrangle it in yeah and you do have the, the ability to, to control that a bit
1: so back to your sense of how to be a great student in college or graduate school and my synthesis of what you said is how to be a great student explore define for yourself and figure out for yourself what that experience should be and what it looks like.
2: Yep. Explore, 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 explore. Do everything you can possibly do. I really do believe like the the more things you can accumulate experientially at that age particularly, it quickly helps you evaluate what's possible in the world.
1: From the words of an explorer who advises others to explore, for you, one of the formative life experiences was not exploratory, it was an accident. Yep tell us about that.
2: A few years ago now, I had an experience in my life that completely changed me as a person and in a very cliche way. I was driving in upstate New York with one of my designers actually on the small two-lane highway. And out of the blue, this woman drove through a stop sign and T-boned us, which at first, all the things that People talk about happening in an accident. It was exactly what happened. It all slows down and like you kind of have time to think. And then we spin around and I realize now that we're in the opposite lane and there is a semi coming towards us. And in that split moment, I knew instantly that it was over. And it was amazing because it was actually quite calm, the feeling. I had a semi-trailer driving at me at 100 kilometers an hour, 60 miles an hour. I was going 60 miles an hour. I thought it was done. And we hit head-on. Our car flipped, flew around. We ended up landing on the driver's side, and I was driving. And I was awake the entire time this whole thing happened. And the sound, the, the feeling of that impact... I'm talking about it and I, I can feel it right now it's in some ways incredible because it's forces that we don't ever experience and both in terms of uh, and without going too far there but like like spiritual but then also like the physical and like all these things happening at the same time where you kind of recognize your mortality like all these things happening in a very cliche way like I said in that time that I saw the semi-trailer my reaction was actually to curl up into a ball And that came from a friend who had been in a really serious accident in high school. I remember being told that that's like how she protected herself. And I don't know why that came back to me, but it came back to me And when the car stopped and I put my legs down, my legs were outside of the car. Because of the way the semi had turned and the way I had turned, he had cut off the whole front of the car. Your
1: legs would have been gone.
2: It's unreal to think about it you know you have this feeling like what the hell's going on so what happened to the passenger i called his name and wasn't responding and i saw a lot of stuff falling on the airbags and i saw a lot of blood coming down and i think my mind went to the worst place possible in that moment i thought something horrible had happened to him and it's crazy because that was what actually impacted me the most the thought that i had hurt somebody in that way hmm. Even though you know it wasn't my fault or anything, but I felt a lot of responsibility in that. So what happened? He got transported by ambulance to hospital. Oddly, bumps and bruises. He was all scraped up and stuff. He was bleeding a bit, but like, he was discharged from hospital after a couple of days. And you? I fractured my spine, in two places. So I was medevaced out to the hospital. This is a scary moment. It was difficult to be in a hospital by yourself. And the days in the hospital, your brain was saying, was doing Well, I think the the very beginning of it, the first day, was them coming in and telling me they don't know what the result is going to be. And You could be paralyzed. Yeah. And being by myself and getting that information was really intense. And I didn't know what that meant. And all I knew, I had to go into surgery. You know, after some time in the hospital, I was then shipped back to Canada. I was immobilized, I was in a full body cast, couldn't really do anything. And my father came with me at the beginning of those first few weeks and had to take care of me. But take care of me in the way that like you would take care of a baby. But it was amazing because that experience brought me so much closer to my father. Wow. And then my mother came for six weeks and similarly, like when in our lives do we get to spend that type of intense time with our parents at this age? And you know, when I was able to start walking again, and I would walk so, so. I have a park across the street from my house. It's maybe a five-minute walk around. I would do it in two hours. And my friends would schedule times to come and do this walk. That's and so nice. So having community was huge. Yeah. Having the support structures.
1: So how long until you knew that you could walk, that you could rehabilitate yourself?
2: It was about six to eight weeks before I knew that there was a path. Wow. Like, there was a legitimate path. And the crazy part is, though, I didn't stop working. <laughs> As soon as I was back in bed in my own apartment, I hired my assistant, who is still working with me today, three and a half years later. Over that time in bed, I grew the team up to 16 people.
1: 16 people. Yeah.
2: People call you
1: Toronto's Willy Wonka. So that's like now that that's what you're referred to as. So you're telling us 16 people all of a sudden are part of this ecosystem of yours, Doing what
2: they're a complete mix of designers, architects, scientists, chefs, who basically explore food. And how did it start? What was the first project? So the first project actually started like a couple of years before for the business in general. And the very first one was creating this edible cloud. There was a very serendipitous thing that happened where I was doing these ridiculous projects in food. I needed some money to to make them actually happen. I had met somebody at an event who him and I started collaborating on kind of a a bio art installation. And he became kind of like a producer for me. Like he really was able to pull things out of me that I didn't know I had inside of me. And then he saw the food stuff and he happened to be consulting for PepsiCo at the time. He's like, would you ever do something for Pepsi? I was like, So you're a food scientist. You have no commercial uh, projects like this. I wasn't even a food scientist. I'm still a biomedical engineer doing crazy food stuff. And he says, do anything. That was it. And that project was actually in Chicago. And the project was? It was basically creating this immersive environment. And I'd never done anything like this. I was sitting in a laboratory. He gave me 10 days. uh, (laughs) And I show up in Wicker Park here in Chicago. I rent this photographer's studio loft. And I don't even know what I'm getting myself into. But I have the entire executive team from the Global Beverage Group at PepsiCo coming to this live-in laboratory. And the concept was creating all these different multisensorial experiences around food, but in a laboratory-type space. Okay. And one of the pieces was this edible cloud, which really that the notion behind it was like, how do you deconstruct something, obviously, that they know, so they're so familiar with, their beverage product, and then we you break it up into its different components of flavors and take away all the texture, the sugar, all these other things, and strip it down to its core, which is, for me... You know, most of food is so much, but it's flavor. Oh, a huge component of this flavor, obviously texture, and not these others. But yeah, it was like, how do we just reinform ourselves about something? And that was really the thesis for myself. And so yeah, ten days, built a bunch of clouds. I had this band there to like see like the way the sound actually influences the way we taste things. It was all these experimental stations. Some of them were like their mid fifties and really conservative people who were playing like children. You so almost show them a different angle to see the thing that they see every day anyways. And that's exactly yeah. it. Is that right? Yeah. And as these projects continued, I was brought in to do stuff for music festivals, installations around music festivals where so we create these like cloud rooms and the cloud kind of became like a thematic in the early days. So we did everything from like Coachella to South by Southwest. We did installations with brands so different brand collaborations, uh, which again, I didn't know. This is not my industry. I have no idea so what you're I'm doing. you're just
1: learning. It goes back to your experience of college, which is at some point you have to create
2: your experience to become experienced. Yeah, there's no other way of putting it. It sounds right. ridiculous, but it's true. Because there are no rules. And that was like so much of this process, I realized like no one else actually knows what they're doing. And so they're just conforming to a lot of pathways that have been already set. Right. And it takes people time to understand what I do because it doesn't exist. Even now, the
1: way that you both find purpose in life and make money to live, to eat, to have a shelter is a thing that doesn't exist doesn't exist in most people's brains. Yeah, that's why you're so phenomenal. So,
2: okay, give us one more example pre-accident. So we started attracting some attention, and we had an investor group from the middle east approach us about creating some food concepts with them you know i had experience working in restaurants before but never starting things from scratch and they wanted to say hey let's create some alternatives that are healthful so one of them was this banana based ice cream and so for us we tasked ourselves with really creating an ice cream product that tastes exactly like vanilla ice cream but is made 100% from frozen blend bananas you know so it was like really just like playing with the material looking at food as a material that can be could you do that and we did it yeah it's open it exists it's all it's, like it's all different. bananas Bananas, it's all uh, It's in multiple 100%. locations over the Middle East. And it tastes like ice cream. It tastes like ice cream. It's great. Yeah, People love it. It's delicious. It.
1: Okay. So then post, so you had the accident. Take us through some of the projects that have come out of that period of your life. And I'm interested in how that pause button that you experienced has influenced the projects or the execution of projects post that moment.
2: It took a lot of time to digest what happened in the accident. So I think my initial reaction was to go really, really fast and hard out of that accident. We right away did a couple big installations. The very first thing we did was this thing at World Maker Faire. You know, this is a thing in New York City that happens every 150,000 people. We opened this beverage laboratory called BevLab. Tell us, how do you describe the BevLab? Basically, it was a laboratory revolving around beverage. The idea was people would come in create their own beverages, but then explore a different area that we think about uh, through experiments. So like one area was on packaging. So we'd create edible packaging with them. We'd use uh, organic materials like flower blossoms as packaging and like really show people how to do crazy stuff through that. We did something on cross- modalities looking at how the census. So this is 2014, fall 2014. We were already using Google Cardboard. And so While you're is- thinking
1: something Or or even something, you're looking at a a VR experience. Exactly.
2: And remember, people had not seen this yet. And I'm like, Google Cardboard, that's awesome. Let's bring that to here. And people freaked out. They loved it. It was like looking at how that experience could influence the way you eat and drink. And then the other one was about just phases and like transforming whatever creations they made into different phases, whether frozen or whether they're clouds or whatnot. And so that was like people love it. And what I learned through that is like people love doing stuff. People love being given the agency to control what their environment is and the things that they consume and, and they want to learn more about them. So before we get to the Ice Cream
1: Museum, sure. Um, pre-Ice Cream Museum, tell me one more, one more.
2: A really big one for us was the launch of this thing called the Sensorium, which was a multi-sensorial immersive dining experience. Basically, we set up this giant dome in Toronto during Toronto International Film Festival and we worked with a brand to do that. And... We essentially curated this five-course meal around the senses. And so we had 360 projections happening that were commissioned by an incredible group based in Toronto as well. We had you know, a composer create the entire track for it and had these incredible interactive food elements that were brought to life in front of you. And so one of my favorite pieces was this moment where you know, the, everything goes dark in the, the, the dome and a spotlight turns on on this drummer who starts playing a, a rhythm. So you sit in a place and you literally let
1: things happen, not just in front of you with food, but all around you. Immersive. 100% immersive. And then at one
2: point, everything goes dark and there's a spotlight. The guy starts playing drums. Then what happens? So everything goes dark. Spotlight is on the drummer and he starts building rhythm. And during that time, everyone's served kind of a bowl of broth in front of them. And there's a bit of like a, a light just under it. And they're all watching the drummer. And as he starts building and building and building, the broth in front of them starts to come to life. And as he crescendos, the broth then starts turning into a fountain right in front of all the people at the table. So we're talking about hundred hundreds of people. So we have a hundred people. Hundred
1: people, here. and every person's bowl of broth is is now gyrating to the same. It turns
2: into a fountain in front of them that's going exactly to the rhythm of what the the drummer is playing.
1: And the punchline is you combine technology and design and food, and that's the perfect example because you created the technology that then allowed the food to come alive that brought the design of the sensory design into to bear and
2: that's exactly it. and to create an experience like for everything we do, the fundamental value is creating food intent and food consciousness through delight. And for me that's like really what drove me into food and uh, into the creating what I've, I've created and what I'm still creating on a daily basis but it's really like how do we create, or make these moments where people take pause and they allow themselves to think and consider what's going on in their lives and consider the things they're consuming. And it's not a judgment call. I'm not trying to tell people this is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do, but at least give yourself the opportunity to choose. Here's what's interesting.
1: You're using food. You're using chemical engineering to explore the limits of food and how people interact with food. You're using both of those things to create moments of presence of being right here right now, which is what you had to face personally when you were in the accident.
2: It's an incredible way of connecting the dots, but that's exactly it. It's really those moments. How do we have those moments where we encounter ourselves? We strip away the judgments that we normally have or the, the other information that's going on and we, we, we can pause.
1: So talk about your role in creating this thing called the Ice Cream Museum and, and maybe more importantly, what that means to you and your life story.
2: The Museum of Ice Cream was an incredible project that we started up. I was brought in as a founding partner by two friends who kind of had the summer off. I was taking a break after doing this, like, ridiculous project in New York that kind of had consumed a year of my life. And one of my friends, Manish, sent me an email. He's like, oh, my girlfriend has this idea. And we want to see if it's, like, interesting. And so we got together for breakfast during this production. And... Basically, they presented me this idea of, like, you know, we want to have this thing with a pool of sprinkles. We're thinking about this museum of ice cream. What do you think? I'm That's like, all it was. That The only
1: actual executional element was a pool of sprinkles.
2: Yeah. And that was a dream. Mary Ellis really had this amazing creative dream to have a, a pool of sprinkles. <laughs> and that was the instigator of it.
1: So simply an idea about a pool of sprinkles. And the end of that story is this is now in multiple cities. Yeah. It is 100% sold out from like 10 a.m. until 11 p.m. at night, every day, totally sold out. And how do you describe
2: the impact of what you guys created? It became a cultural phenomenon. I think it was exactly the right thing at the right time in the right place. We hadn't anticipated that ourselves. Like I remember so clearly a week before our press release went out. We're having this conversation mid-June. We were opening at the end of July. And so, like things were moving real fast. And you found a space in Cal- a space was lined up already. This was in New York City. So something had to happen in the space. Something had to happen in the space, and, and it was totally. available in six weeks. Okay, so you, so in six weeks,
1: you figure out that you're going to do a museum of ice cream, or you thought, like what's going to be in this. Or what's museum going here? to be in there?
2: Um, and build it
1: out. So no, there's no pool of ice cream. Nothing has for existed. Rented. No, right.
2: yeah, yeah. Everything from scratch, happening really, really quickly. We don't even know if people are going to show up. We're standing outside it just down the street under the high line thinking, how can we do this like illegal kind of activation to have like someone selling tickets or saying, oh, go over there, go buy some tickets. and nobody might show up. Yeah, no one will show up. You know, we we're very fortunate. The press release went out within five days. It had gone viral internationally in the news. And I believe it was within that first week that all the first 30,000 tickets were sold out.
1: 30,000.
2: Yeah. And how many tickets have you
1: sold out in LA? Order of magnitude, hundreds of thousands of tickets. Yeah. 100% sold out. Yeah all from an idea yeah. of three people at a at a coffee shop starting with two things the name or the concept let's do a museum of ice cream yeah and let's have a pool with sprinkles absolutely and what does that say to a person who has an idea and i know we could say oh cliche is do anything you want to do but like how about more technically or more tactically what lesson do you now know based upon what has come out of the museum of ice cream that we need to know about our ideas
2: there's something magical about having an idea, but there's also something magical about having the right people bring it to life. And I think we really do need to check ourselves a bit and find those people who can bring things to life around us and explore it and, you know, test it and flex and see how it can be brought online. Because again, a cliche, but like they're a dime a dozen, like it's so easy to have an idea.
1: So the thing that's not a dime a dozen is
2: people who can execute. And how do you tell whether you've encountered someone who can execute? You can see it in their eye. Like you can see it in their eye. People who are driven to execute are usually no BS and they're ready to go. Nothing is impossible. We're going to do this and we're going to do it now. And there's an urgency and there's the ability to see bigger picture about how we're going to figure it out rather than immediately going into all these kind of nitty gritty details on so it. So
1: even more tactically, it's less of let's have a meeting about it and it's more let's do it. Let's proceed in the direction of doing to
2: see what happens. So and again, that fundamentally is a part of the, the studio philosophy as well. So our studio Future Food Studio, you know, I have some fundamental tenets and one of them is proto fast, learn fast. I want to see the prototype as soon as you tell me the idea. Like now. Like, like now. Like there's we, no reason. Right. And and put it together with sticks and tape I don't care what it looks like I need to understand the prototype I need to see it in the world I function through tangibles I'm an engineer I'm kind of practical that way yeah. and I need it in the world immediately so in your studio there's lots of material there's lots of stuff to grab and tape And so I think my assistant Vanessa she describes it the best when she describes our storage facility. She's like, some would say you're a hoarder, (laughs) but it's because you need to have all these things to inspire the way that you're going to build and create, but really get inspired, find things. Things don't necessarily make sense all the time, but you have to prototype and get it out the door because otherwise it's just an idea.
1: There's so much there to that thought of life. Well, it's a student. The prototyping is go experience something. In business, it's like stop meeting about it, start showing me or doing or proving what it is, and then we can see whether it works or not, but show what it is first, and then I could keep going on. I mean, you're now core to the thing I observe every day. Too much thinking about what we should do and not enough, here's what it looks like if I did what I think I want to do. What do you think based upon how it looks or how it feels or what you react physically to the visual or, or dimensional prototype of what it looks like? It's bizarre to me in the world of technology, or at least the creation of technology businesses, how that concept is held by some but not all. And the thought of let's think about how to do it is so counter to everything we now know about the pace of business and the pace of of creation. So I digress.
2: No, but that's the, that's exactly it. And like for us, then that's how all the projects we do roll out. And the amazing thing is like having the ability to look at everything and just say, let's, let's go, let's do it.
1: And nothing is the way it's supposed to be necessarily. You got to question the way everything is. There's no structure.
2: Nothing actually exists.
1: I love that. Okay. We generally end the, uh, my podcast with some lightning round sort of random questions. This has been so fascinating, but I still want to do a couple. Um, what is your favorite food? Given that you're all over food. Blueberries,
2: very basic, but I am addicted to blueberries.
1: Really? Yeah. I used to be, I used to have a couple of blueberries almost every morning. And I still, (laughs) only because I know how oxidant rich they are.
2: I think it's the best addiction to have (laughs) because, yeah, they have all these polyphenols and they're great for you, but they're also delicious. That's so funny.
1: Um, What time of day is your most productive time of day?
2: 5 a.m. to 8 a.m.
1: Finish this formula for human beings, X plus Y equals a successful life. Creating a community.
2: Who's the most brilliant person you've ever encountered? This is a tough one. Yeah, I know. Okay. <laughs> one of my PhD uh, supervisors, Dave Waits at Harvard University. And why is he so brilliant? His ability to create space for people to create. So it's not what he knows, it's how he interacts that's he, so brilliant. He creates environments for people to do their best.
1: Wow. If you could collaborate professionally in, in, the, in your zone of genius with one person, who would it be?
2: These days, Edward Bertinsky.
1: We'll end with this. If, if you had to pass on a quote saying just a piece of something with words that you know, what would that be?
2: Simplicity. Phenomenal.
1: Irwin. my observation of you in the world is that you are disregarding the limitations that society has placed on food, on experiences, on being human. You've disregarded the way things are and you're focused on what could be. So I want to thank you for being here. And I want to tell you that anyone who had the good fortune of listening to this is going to be exposed to a person who's making impact. And that's unbelievable how much more is to come. So thank you for taking the time to be here.
2: Thanks so much for having me here.
0: What goes through people's minds when making life-changing decisions? How does one know when to pursue an idea? Check out The Upside with Brad Keywell on iTunes and SoundCloud.